0: This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Arby's. Franklin, Arby's getting into the booze business. What are friends in Atlanta doing selling vodka? Arby's vodka, to Arby's
1: Crinkle Fries, marinated in the vodka. Sounds disgusting, to be honest with you. I don't like crinkle fries in general, but uh, but yeah. Oh, it's the curly fries, excuse me, not crinkle, curly. Get my, my fry nomenclature correct. I don't like, I actually like the crinkle fries I don't like the curly fries um, with the seasoning out it. Uh-uh, ain't my, ain't my bag. But they're putting that in some vodka, Joe.
0: I, I just can't imagine what that – I mean, I love Arby's. You know you know, I've talked about the Arby's thing. I'm a huge Arby's fan. I love the curly fries. I think they've got, like, sleeper good shakes that nobody really knows about. The, Arby's got some, some good stuff. So this is a – I guess it's a test. It's in about 10 states, um, California, Connecticut – Florida, Idaho, Louisiana, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, Oregon, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So scattering across the country, Arby's, Curly Fry, and French Fry flavored vodkas coming soon to a theater near you. And on that happy note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the vote is on. Starbucks workers in three Buffalo locations have started to vote on whether or not to affiliate with a local SEIU chapter. The company tried to delay the process, but the NLRB proceeded as schedule. And if that's not enough, this week, three additional stores filed a new petition with the NLRP. We'll discuss the Starbucks grande, or shall we say venti, problem in which the company finds itself. And inflation is having both economic and political ramifications as Americans are losing buying power and the president is bleeding political capital. We'll discuss the whys and wherefores of inflation and what that means for the business and political environments. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner Franklin Coley. And Franklin, we've been following the Starbucks process in Buffalo for a number of weeks, but man, oh man, it is underway. The election has started, and then lo and behold, a couple more stores jumped into the fray and said, "said Don't forget about us. We want to. We want to play too." What's going on in Buffalo? Votes are being cast.
1: Absentee ballots are being sent in, so we have started the official vote in the initial three locations. Um, that was after some last-minute filings asking for a delay uh, by the company that were rejected by the NLRB. So we're off to the races. You know, we'll we'll see how things shake out. But unions in 2020 had a 72% win rate, and I think the SEIU's win rate is probably substantially higher than that. So, you know, you got to think, unless the company pulls a rabbit out of a hat, that this is a done deal. I think the voting goes through early December. I want to say like the 9th, but don't quote me on that. So we're, we're its own, Joe, it's happening right now in those first three locations. Now, if you'll remember, there was another batch of locations that filed election petitions shortly thereafter and then withdrew them because the company was positioning to broaden the bargaining unit to every restaurant in the market. And the union didn't want that. Only wanted to do it by individual locations. So have the bargaining unit be these three first restaurants. Now that that's all kind of off to the races, we've got more election petitions coming in. I haven't checked to see if these were the exact locations that were that filed the election petitions and with and then withdrew them initially. I suspect they are. But we have three additional locations, bringing the total to six now that are somewhere in the process of holding union elections uh, within the Buffalo market. So, yeah, it's full on right now,
0: Joe. Yeah. So for just uh, for clarification, the voting period ends officially on December the 8th. That's when the window shuts and the votes will begin being tabulated the next day on December the 9th. So that's what the timelines uh, we have for the first three. Obviously, the next three are in the process of filing uh, with the NLRB to begin that process. Franklin, you've made uh, a point a a number of times that there's been, you know, not very much media coverage it's it's kind of floated under the radar screen uh what you just said and that this is this election is you know in part and parcel with the SEIU you've been saying that's not gotten a lot of media attention the SEIU connection why do you think that is well it doesn't
1: necessarily benefit the union organizing effort um to to make it appear organic and local and peer to peer puts the union in a better position to win so it's clear to me why the seiu and the union want this to be we have not seen fight for 15 emails going out on the unionization effort at starbucks we have not seen fight for 15 national beating up starbucks um and that's very intentional it has been characterized as a local organizing effort it's not clear to me why the company has not itself or activated kind of third-party partners to make those direct connections. I guess it has made the strategic decision that that is not worth their time and energy. Somebody on the other side has to draw those connections and push that narrative out there. And that hasn't happened and the media isn't really covering it in great detail. And so, yeah, you're right. It's kind of slid under the radar. Now, once we have three or six organized locations what's your bet joe that national fight for 15 starts spiking the football and claiming credit for this
0: i, I think about about a hundred percent
1: yeah so i i think like that part of it's coming and i guess from the kind of company side like you know you could make a strong argument that well let's just kind of keep this quiet and act like this is not really happening and you know da 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 da. but fight for 15 is going to make sure that this is a national news story and is known and so I, I to me it's not clear why you don't start drawing those direct connections uh but clearly a strategic decision not not to or the and the press is not taking the initiative on its own to kind of draw out all those connections but it's there and you know if we want to step back for a second joe the fight for 15 and a union campaign <laughs> right that started however many years ago now what is it, seven or eight, I can't even remember at this point, but let's, let's call it the better part of a decade, has won substantial successes for a $15 an hour minimum wage. I mean, moved the needle on that issue. You know, I We got starting wages at today in the legislative scorecard. We've got Macy's and Ikea, the, just the ones this week that are going above a $15 an hour starting wage. Like that is not even really a discussion anymore. They've won that conversation. What they haven't won is the anti-union part, but they're getting ready to start talking really loud about it if they win in these Starbucks locations. And so I think, you know, if you're guessing how the SEIU and their labor allies at Cornell are going to write this this story, this origin story, this narrative in in the next five to 10 years, I think this is a Pretty kind of critical milestone in this larger campaign and effort. Assuming they win, and assuming they go on to to other victories afterwards, and putting that, I, I think in that
0: context, like this is a pretty big deal. Well, Franklin, you made a point of saying that um, you were kind of surprised why the why the Starbucks team hasn't, you know, pointed out the SEIU connections, you know, more more vocally and and there's calculations as to why and why not you know, why you don't do those things. We don't have line of sight into that. But you know, in terms of flying execs into problem spots, you remember a couple of years ago in Philadelphia, where a a man was arrested, uh, accused of loitering while he waited in a, an African American was waited, uh, was accused of loitering waiting for a friend as at a, at a Starbucks was arrested. It was a big, big kerfluffle, And they flew their CEO at the time into that restaurant to try to mitigate. they flew flown their ex-CEO and now, I guess, chairman of the board, Howard Schultz, the founder of the company, into Buffalo. Is the uh, the, ex- the executive fly-in part of the Starbucks playbook?
1: Yeah, and it reminded me of the Obama Beer Summit um, is really what they were kind of recreating. Starbucks was recreating there in Philadelphia. That, that playbook is... Um, I think it was appropriate i think that worked very well they also shut down the stores for a day to do a racial sensitivity and, and, and cultural sensitivity training um so you know they they use that opportunity to kind of reinforce the company's values and i i thought it worked well in that instance i think that playbook was specific to that kind of set of circumstances and does not translate over well into kind of you know a labor organizing campaign, and I, I do feel like they tried to essentially use that same playbook, um, and I don't think it's having the the same effect at all. Um, but look, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this stuff. You know, um, we don't know all the dynamics within these particular workplaces and and what's at play. Um, clearly, I, I think the company and others are looking beyond these workplaces to the the next three and then the the next hundred beyond that. And uh, are worried about kind of the broader conversation and narrative, uh, regardless of what happens with these three locations, the election, and they've made some strategic decisions based on that.
0: Well, it will, you know, it will certainly be a test case. Every other company that's particularly, you know, that is potentially vulnerable in this space, We'll be watching in Monday morning quarterbacking everything that the company does and doesn't do, uh, and it'll be a topic of much conversation long after this uh, union vote, one way or the other, that we'll know the results of sometime in uh, mid-December. So uh, we'll keep tabs on that story. Well, the, over the last couple of weeks and certainly this past week, uh, the headlines have been full of stories about inflation And what inflation is doing to a lot of our public policy issues, to the supply chain crisis, to prices everywhere, food prices. But obviously, inflation is a political hot button issue as well. Franklin, what is going on with the politics of inflation? And if you're Joe Biden, how do you how do you navigate this? As a political nerd, this
1: is super exciting. I mean, you know, Carter Reagan was like mid career for you, but. For, for me, you know it's it's you know this stuff is history. Having inflation as a political issue is, 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 is just kind of neat um, because it's not something that usually rises up to to be part of kind of the public dialogue that normal people are talking about inflation. but that is certain biflation is, is certainly on um, the front lips of everyone. Um, everyone's seeing gas prices go up um and you know there's real world you know milk prices right like these real world kind of kitchen table costs are going up it's interesting the way the politics are kind of playing out around this um Republicans were quick to jump on it Mitch McConnell was talking about it weeks if not like months ago at this point um and they're linking Democrats spending bills which you would which Democrats want to go in the campaign trail and talk about as a win they're talking about those spending bills are basically eroding the middle class's buying power and so it's a little bit of political jujitsu to kind of put these spending bills these big wins by the democrats as the as the problem the source of the problem that's leading to inflation um and it, it's just going to be interesting how as we go into campaign season i feel like this this line of political attack has like taken hold one hundred percent It's in the broad me. electorate, and and I don't know if there's any way for Biden and the Democrats to really unring this bell unless economic conditions kind of change and turn around, which by the way is largely out of the control. There's not a lot that the president and Democrats in Congress can do um, here. I mean, you know, there, obviously there's 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 policy tools to kind of slow down and and curb inflation. And of course, they're doing all that stuff, but. The economy is going to roll and keep rolling how it's going to roll. And these are things that are largely out, outside their control. So um, it's just really interesting to see like a, 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 a sleepy issue like this become kind of a defining issue as we head into the 2022 elections. Yeah, I mean, it's it's
0: it's you, you, I think you use the term jujitsu. It's it's I use a different term for it. It's horse shit. Um, it's intellectually ridiculous. But what's causing inflation is that we shut down the world economy for a year and a half. The year the, the, the goods and services are rare to come by as it's gonna take years for the the supply chain to catch back up. And so all those goods are at a at a at a premium. That's what's causing uh, and of course, what's going on in the oil markets, but that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker in as political gold as you said. I and I do remember it was not mid-career, thank you. I do remember the the days and, and and Jimmy Carter, you know, the, the similarities between Carter and Biden to me are eerie in the sense that, you know, here was a guy that just couldn't seem to get a break, couldn't seem to put the right foot in front of the other, couldn't seem to hit the right tone and you know tone and tenor for any of the issues he cared about, and then the inflation thing was hung around his neck, and we had gas lines, and you know, 1978-79, we use, we use a term called stagflation. I don't know if you've ever heard of stagflation, but it's basically inflation plus high inflation plus high unemployment. We don't have high unemployment, but we certainly have high inflation. And man, Carter was dead. Carter, Even without the iran hostage crisis, there was no way Carter was getting reelected president. But so yeah, I would I mean, say I would, that it is political energy in that issue. That's for sure.
1: I would push back a little in that all the government money that has been dumped into the economy has certainly been part of the soup pot of 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 elements that have led to these economic
0: conditions now well if that were true then in the 1930s would have been the inflation high mark of the world so you know the, the new deal would have been inflationary so it's we obviously that's not the, the case so I mean, we
1: go back and check and i'm sure it was inflationary it was yeah. just
0: under control but
1: inflation was an issue coming out of during the great depression of course but you know there were decades of spending after that so you know i think it is probably incorrect to say that it's not part of the equation. There's a lot of other stuff going on there
0: to your not point. Like the unemployment. It's the same crowd that blamed the labor shortage on unemployment benefits as because it was one important issue in a pile. It's the same thing with this inflation. It's the same crowd that's at the now, end of the day riding the, the one trick pony that's going the wrong way.
1: At the end of the day, the president, rightfully or wrongfully, is always held to account for the state of the the economy. No question.
0: And, no question. And and, and
1: so oftentimes there's not kind of clean lines of attack for political opponents own the economy where things where one word or one term or one becomes kind of a proxy for all these other gripes or concerns within the economy and inflation is becoming that and so it is becoming a very sharp line of attack and just stepping back from kind of the politics of it i mean it's a real concern for all of us right and but certainly for operators that are seeing all kinds of pressures now they've got another pressure which is potentially like rising food cost and you know we've already got labor costs going through the roof right so you know you potentially have in some markets we're seeing rising energy costs like spiking energy costs in some places that obviously affects operators too so the politics are, are one thing but you know operators have some dollars and cents impacts here and, and as well so i think this has begun going to be a defining issue over the the coming kind of months and we'll see it's always hard to predict a year out from election day you know what are going to be the big issues that kind of define that election but i think this is in that mix certainly you know it, it, it could be um and we'll see time will tell if it is but it's definitely in that mix of kind of big issues
0: 100 i mean when 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 the pocketbook gets squeezed, people get mad and they get mad at the the, the guy at the top. So it's, you know, it's a political, it's an easy political calculation. And 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 there's there's no, there's really, you know, and and again, I'm not an economist, but there aren't a lot of things that can be done. It's, it's, you can't artificially undo inflation, right? You know, it, it has to kind of work. There are some things you can do to stimulate here and there. There's things you can do with money supply and monetary policy, but, you know, there's not a whole lot of bills that can pass Congress that are going to address inflation. So it's going to be, you know, by and large, have to work itself out of the system, and it will and it will take a long time to do that. And it may be in a post, <laughs> a quick post Biden presidency, as we saw in the 1970s yeah. and 80s, uh, when that happens. I mean, the, the the thing to slow down is essentially put the
1: brakes on the the economy, which, you know, if you put the brakes on too hard to slow things down, then, you know, we're, we're going to sputter back. And so it's a delicate dance. And to your point, it's going to have to work itself out. In the meantime, there will be political fallout and it ain't looking good for the the Dems that are, you know, in control of both houses and and the presidency right now because people are feeling it at, the, at their kitchen table. So no anyway, going to be interesting over the uh, over the coming months to see kind
0: of how things
1: uh, play out.
0: It's time for the legislative scorecard. we we'll go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, the business community writ large in D.C. got active this week and filed litigation on the federal vaccine mandate. They did jumping into the
1: fray. As we know, the vaccine mandate has stayed. We talked about that earlier right now. Um, And we're also advising companies to go ahead and prepare for it to go into effect, but there will be tons of legal wrangling um, over the coming weeks and months. And the business community is jumping in two feet into that conversation as well. There was a lawsuit filed by a ton of business groups, National Retail Federation, American Trucking Association, National Association, convenience stores, NFIB and others, arguing that the mandate um, causes, quote, it it will, quote, inflict irreparable harm, end quote, to their member companies. Um, It includes, quote, unrecoverable compliance cost, end quote, and will uh, deteriorate a, quote, already uh, fragile supply chains and labor markets, end quote. So basically, they're saying it's unworkable. And when we had add on, he talked through some of the challenges that the the mandate presents, and they are substantial. So, um, you know, the courts could choose to knock down little provisions within the mandate, like they could come in and knock down that uh, employees have to pay for it and make employers pay for it, right? The, so, all there's a bunch of different provisions and elements of this that are going to be challenged. That's going to take some time to work itself out. It took like at least five years for all the legal challenges to ACA which is more expansive but you know to work themselves out but in the meantime the employer community prepared to comply and complied and I think that's what we have to continue to do here Joe.
0: And speaking of Franklin of the employer community in and out Burger back in the news uh, this week evidently uh, they got a little Little phone call from the governor of Florida, trying to uh, make political hay out of their situation in California, and see if In-N-Out Burger was uh, wanting to come to the Sunshine State. So
1: In-N-Out Burger, when we did the segment on them earlier, we gave them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in in pushing back on the the California mandates, saying essentially that their positioning was business decision driven, and you know took into account kind of the impact on their employees and their customers and wasn't really in the political grandstanding arena as much as maybe some of the other stuff has been. They're clearly now in the political grandstanding arena and have made themselves a target. So yeah, I mean, it was made public and I guess maybe it was made, we don't know exactly how it was made public. You know, the governor's schedule is, you know, a lot of that stuff is Freedom of Information Act requests. So it could have been that in and out, The CEO got on the uh, on the phone and didn't know it was going to be public. Should have known it was going to be public, should have been advised that um, if that was the case. Regardless, now they have basically gave a warm embrace to the tip of the spear in pushing back on everything Biden administration in the vaccine mandate, masking that whole space. They have jumped full fledged into the political fray now and they're going to kind of get what comes to them now. I mean, you, you know, I, I think this is going to put them in a bad posture with California regulators and, and other kind of blue state regulators, basically everywhere their footprint is. So I'm not sure I, I see what the the value here was in, in making this purely political statement and doing a phone call with the the governor of Florida, who immediately made a big deal out of it and tweeted and, you know, is it's is putting it out there. So in and out now, fully in the political fray, own these kind of wedge issues that the Biden administration and Republican govs are going back and forth on.
0: And they they basically said, no, they're they're They have no, you know, no plans nor, you know, to come to Florida. It shows you how little these hairball politicians know about business. And, you know, you can't just set an outpost of in and out in the middle of, of you know, thousands of miles from its nearest distribution centers and nodes and all that kind of stuff. You know, just just pure politics, 24-7 all the time. Uh, Speaking of which, right on cue, Alabama uh, getting in the conga line of states pushing back on the – can you believe the state of Alabama is pushing back on federal regulations? I can't believe it from the Biden administration. Yeah, it's weird.
1: Governor signed legislation mandating that employers can't fire workers for being unvaccinated against COVID-19 if the employee returns a new standardized state form to claim a religious or medical exemption. Also signed into law a separate bill requiring parental consent for minors to get vaccinated. Yeah, so Alabama re-ups and kind of joins the fray. Um, One of many states
0: pushing back. Franklin, switching to wages, a uh, lot of lot of activity on the wage front at the corporate level. But Disney, uh, in the news this week, they won, uh, it appears, uh, at least at this stage, a, a significant court case that you and I have been watching for many, many years in, in, in Anaheim, California. This is super interesting. So, yeah,
1: we've been reporting in a while the unions pushed a ballot measure to really forced Disney kind of to the bargaining table. It was a direct attack at Disney and their hotels. And it basically said that any hotel that had received a city subsidy would have to oblige by this this higher wage in the ballot initiative. And I think it was, yeah, $18 an hour by twenty twenty two. So that's that's no joke. It turns out that Disneyland doesn't have a substance, according to the courts. It's a it's a complex contractual relationship between Disney and the city where I may mess this up, but I'll get the main gist of it. Basically, Disneyland bought some land and then under a lease agreement with the city, leased it back and then leased it, released it from them to put in a parking garage at a dollar a year. And, and so it, it was kind of this complex contractual agreement between the city that was a big break for Disneyland. And of course, the city was fine to do it because they wanted – You know the the business traffic and the commerce in the city at the time and uh but it doesn't qualify as a subsidy so disney's off the hook according to the courts and being subject to this ballot measure and so this disney wins this battle in the larger kind of ongoing war with the, the local unions there
0: yeah two things i would add i think the judge basically said look you know these these land development swaps are really you know, part of the bond issue process and bonds are issued for these developments. And as such, all taxpayers pay off the interest on in those bonds. And so there's no direct subsidy. It's all coming out of that pocket of dollars that are allocated for bond and bond repayment interest debt on the bonds. And so therefore, it doesn't qualify as a subsidy, as best with the judge added. I do think the, uh, the union has made it clear they're going to appeal. So we haven't heard the last of it, but a big win for Disney out in Anaheim. And you know, has has ramifications for uh, for other like minded initiatives that are kind of targeting sectors of the economy for different wages. Uh, Franklin, speaking of sectors, the retail sector busy this week, Ikea and Macy's making some wage announcements.
1: Yeah, the beat goes on. another week, another wage announcements, Ikea is going up $16 an hour with some being bumped up to 17 or $18 an hour, kind of depending on on location. And so that bumps the average wage up to like twenty dollars an hour. So that's a big deal. Macy's similarly is going up to fifteen dollars an hour by next May, and so that'll bump the the base pay will be on average up to seventeen dollars an hour and, and twenty dollars an hour total pay. They're also doing some other benefits. So one hundred percent of tuition, books, and fees. That's that's a it's a big deal. That's on par with you know kind of the. The WalMarts and the Disneys are also um, partnering with Guild Education, which is Disney's partner for their education benefit program. I think Walmart too, but um, Guild is one of the big providers of education benefits, um, and so that's that's a huge, that's a big, that's a big benefit that uh, Macy's employees will now be getting. Shows where the marketplace is going.
0: Yeah, and in uh, benefit side, uh, IKEA as well. Uh, You know, they already had a pretty good benefits package going back to their wage announcement, but they've got that they've added to their package. They have five weeks of paid time off. They've got education assistance, child care, adult care. Uh, So it's 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 not just the wage side of the ledger that is getting greatly enhanced as was happening before the pandemic, but certainly after. So it's, uh, you know, getting harder and harder for average restaurant X to compete out there in the wage and benefit uh, space. Uh, Speaking of pressure of wages on wages, Franklin, Federal Reserve Bank of Minnesota uh, was commissioned to do a study on their recent The cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis uh, commissioned the local Fed to do a study on the impacts of their minimum wage bills. You remember a few years ago, Minneapolis. Uh, went to $15 an hour, I think, it, you know in stair steps, ultimately co- becoming 15 next year. St. Paul did it within the last year or two. They haven't gotten as far, but they asked the Fed to basically do a study on the impacts so, fu- so far, and taking into account pandemic, uh, what's been happening in that space. Franklin, what were the results of this, what I think is a very significant study? It is very significant.
1: The, the The Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis basically found that um, a fifteen the fifteen dollar an hour increases have a negative impact on employment in the restaurant space. And so, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the economists that had done one of the original studies in the nineteen nineties that showed that um, impact to employment was marginal or 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 non-existent and it was a small minimum wage increase i said at the time you know it's probably one of the miss most misquoted studies misused studies of all time because it was a small wage increase here we have essentially that same study and it's a much larger wage increase and it shows that there is a negative impact and so um it's important for that reason it's one of a number of studies that we've had in the, in the past couple of years where Either there's a negative impact to wages, or to maybe hours, or um, diminished employment opportunities. Right, so um, it, it is a big study, and I will go through the details here. And I'm kind of talking over it and and you know what it means. But um, as you said, you know we had uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. They're going to fifteen dollars an hour. It's it's being um, uh, implemented slowly here. Um, so. The researchers found that there weren't a lot of impacts in most sectors, really in all sectors, except for the restaurant space. And and the impacts there were were significant. They found um, job losses in 2018 and 19, as employers likely adjusted, knowing wages had to rise. They calculated that in 2018 and 2019, hourly wages at full service restaurants in Minneapolis rose 4%, and at limited service restaurants, 9%. Um, more than they would have if they had not had a city mandated wage increase. At the same time, the number of restaurant jobs in Minneapolis declined by an additional 12% and 18%, translating into about 2,900 fewer jobs over those two years. So, you know, th- these are substantial negative impacts that have been documented. This is not a fly by night partisan group this is the federal reserve bank so it is a big study joe it does have impacts and i hope we're out there talking about this more more in the future
0: well i i you know wondering what we're waiting for to get started this this study was published november 1st as we do this taping it's november the 12th it's almost two weeks i mean you would think that we would that that the communications entities around the entry-level employment space would be hoisting the study up the flagpole and um getting a lot of attention and and that's not been the case, uh, so I'm, I'm actually, you know, really surprised by that. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I'm surprised by it. I'm surprised by it. But, uh, Franklin, switching to labor policy, the chess game at the NLRB uh, continues over conflicts of interests, and we talked about it in the Browning-Ferris case with lawyer with, with board members from the Trump administration. We've talked about it now at the Biden administration. What's the state of play there now? Yeah, in the McDonald's case in
1: particular, um, there there were conflicts of interest from the Republican board members. And so it basically kind of froze up the board and during the Trump era, owned a lot of joint employer decisions. The thought was that we've got a number of Democrat board members who have now been seated, who have been involved in organizations and law firms, the SEIU and law firms that um, were intimately involved in these joint employer decisions cases previously but they have been cleared of potential conflicts of interest so under this biden board there will not be the same issues it appears at this juncture ruling on kind of joint employer issues that there were under the the trump board that is a big win for the unions and uh you know that will probably open up the floodgates
0: Franklin, uh, switching to activism, we, we we gave a heads up last week on the podcast that early this week, this past week, there would be some uh, workers, McDonald's workers in a number of uh, metros in California walking off the job. Uh, it appears they did just that. Can you give us the details?
1: Yes. Workers in L.A., San Jose, Oklahoma, Sacramento, San Diego walked off over health and safety concerns. This was choreographed, suspected all about building awareness around AB 275, uh, the FAST Recovery Act, um, you know, SEIU is out there beating the drums. They want their sectoral bargaining. They want to get it done in California as a model. We'll see how successful they are in, in elevating it with lawmakers.
0: And on the last piece we have, um, I tell you what, you know, being being government affairs for Amazon, uh, be a full-time job. Obviously, a lot of lot of uh, lot of entities out there. But man, the delivery space, New York City is just the the the, the beatdown for the delivery platforms. in New York continues new legislation introduced this week uh, about medical care and property damage.
1: Yeah, it would require delivery platforms to cover drivers' out-of-pocket costs when it comes to things like medical care, property damage. It will require them to reimburse delivery drivers when workers incur costs related to a crash. And this is also extends to like pedestrians who are struck by delivery drivers. Um, and uh, man, it's just hanging a lot of liability on the delivery platforms, it, moving it off of the driver onto the delivery platforms. I'm sure there's legal challenges ahead if this thing is approved by the city council, but uh, yeah, tough environment. Tough environment there, not only for the uh, restaurant industry, but for uh, delivery platforms and others as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, d- d- if you're going to cover costs for independent contractors that you leverage, boy, the that 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 onion can never get unpeeled. You keep moving your way down the food chain and, you know, you'd be paying the out-of-pocket costs for the the guy who paints your house or mows your lawn or what, I mean, it's just, it's, you can see the, the, the ramifications are there. You're talking about emerging issues. That is a whole body of law that is going to be in play for the next, for the next few years. And as always, we'll be here to cover it. That's our scorecard this week. We'll have another one for you next week. Well, the beat goes on, Franklin. Uh, The conga line continues. Yet another company in the restaurant space has made news with sustainability goals. We've talked about Burger King and RBI. We've talked about McDonald's. We've talked about Panera a week or two ago. Chipotle has doubled down. Uh, They've already made some some announcements in this space, but they kind of doubled down uh, in, you know, against the context of the huge summit in Glasgow. What, What did Chipotle announce this week? Um, they're going to cut their carbon emissions by
1: 50 percent by 2030, um, not only within its restaurants, but within its entire supply chain. So that's aggressive. And it's already been working on, on this across its transportation fleet and restaurants. But this new commitment goes much broader than that. So good for
0: you, Chipotle. Chipotle, as I like to call it. Yeah, It took me years to figure out uh, uh, the proper pronunciation. One thing they have done, and it wasn't part of this announcement that they've done it in the past is, you know, they've tied executive compensation to meeting those cold those goals. So that's a big deal. Uh, that is a big, big deal. so we'll we'll see how that tracks out. All right, well, another busy week. We'll have more, I'm sure, on the vaccination front uh, next week. And uh, until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then.